Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Today, we jump on our TARDIS and travel back to 1994. Oh, yes, it was the birth of Britpop that started the war between Oasis and Blur. On the big screen, Disney taught us that it's okay if a lion eats everything that they see. Hey, man, it's just the circle of life. On the pitch, it was Hakuna Matata for Blackburn, as Jack Walker's millions seen them have a real chance at a first Premier League crown. We take a close look at the month of February with Premiership new boy Swindon Town and Mush the Matchman is live from Boundary Park as Oldham take on Matt Letitia's Southampton. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Keith Curley wins that aerial duel with Ian Marshall. Flickcroft, he picks up the loose ball. He finds Rowcastle. He tries the first time ball, blocked by a sea of red from the Ipswich Tractor Boys. John Walk tries to clear the ball, ends up smashing it off Rowcastle. He's now surrounded, but oh my word, Rowcastle, he's breakthrough, he's weaved away. Great skill by Rocky. You cross the match, does he? Yes, goal, Griffiths, goal! He taps it in, main road erupts as the real magic goes by Rocky. Steve Lomas jumps on Rowcastle's back. As they celebrate a fine equaliser, it's Manchester City 1, Ipswich Town 1. These next two men are very superstitious. Dan refuses to get changed for a match unless Relight My Fire by Take That featuring Lulu is blasting in the dressing room and Mush will not leave the dressing room unless he has his pre-match meal. Two whisper goals and a pint of Bovril. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. Lads, how are we doing today? Doing very good, Stephen. Thank you. Good stuff. Mush, how are you doing? I'm brilliant, Steve. You have just put me in the mood for a whisper gold. Oh, would you wash it down with a Bovril today? I'd just go for a pint of tea. A pint of tea. <laughs> <laughs> a pint of tea. A pint of tea. A pint of tea on a Friday. Lovely job, there. Lads, 1994, I'm not going to lie to you, my head wasn't really into what uh, Swindon Town and Oldham were doing in 1994. I was more concerned with the Power Rangers and whether I could meet Kimberly in real life. Dan, what was going on in 1994 for a young seven-year-old Daniel? Well, my biggest concern in 1994 was no ball game signs, Stephen. Um, <laughs> I hate them. Uh, they're up there with long sleeve jerseys, in my opinion. I just started hitting the streets with my friends and I was disgusted to find the amount of no ball game signs around the surrounding areas. Kids just want to play football. So I send a message out to everyone. Let the kids play football and do not be the man that puts up a no ball game sign. Let the boys play. Here, 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 here. Mush, what were you up to in 94, you little devil? Oh, 94, Steve. I think I remember back then, me and you used to walk to school, uh, which when you look back at that now, that is a mad age that we used to, were able to walk to school and we'd go into the local uh, shop and get a pick a mix and we'd fleece the shop owner and say that it was only about 10p's worth. 
let alone the Tino we had over a pound's worth. Yes, we did. And a Beano as well on a Thursday. Yes, love a good Beano. I can see you've got a lovely tasty jersey on for us today. Who are you wearing today? Yes, Steve, the kit I'm wearing is the West Ham home kit from 1983-1994 season. West Ham's first season in the Premiership, and this was a banger of a kit to match it. A lovely claret and blue with a shadow pattern, a striped crew neck, light blue sleeves, big hammers crest on one side and a single chevron on the other. The kit was made by Pony. No, not the small horse. Pony who made Spurs and Saint kits in the 90s even made Matt Letizia look sexy. They were sponsored by Dagenham Motors. Many's a man has bought a second-hand car off them. Players who have worn this top include Ian Bishop, Steve Potts, Martin Allen, Tony Gale, David Burrows, Alvin Martin, Julian Dix, Tony Cotty, John Moncur, Mark Reaper, and Don Hutchinson. And of a special wee story about the top I'm wearing today, Steve. This top was given to me by actor and big West Ham fan, Harry Fenwick, who plays Billy Mitchell. My kit of the week is the West Ham home kit from 93-94. Dan, what do you make of Mush's West Ham kit? It's long sleeve. Are you a fan? I'm not a fan of long sleeve shirts, uh, but I am a fan of that West Ham shirt, so I would like uh, most the matchman to maybe cut those sleeves down a wee bit. Dan, you look like you've got a tasty little number on as well. Maybe going a bit far this week wearing the captain's armband, but uh, what are you wearing for us? I couldn't resist the armband today, Steve, because this week, my kit of the week is the Legion United away kit from the 1993-1994 season. It's yellow and blue in colour, stripes all the way up and down the kit. It also reminds me of the TV show Bananas in Pyjamas. Its shirt sponsor is Thistle Hotels. Spent many a weekend in a Thistle Hotel myself, and I am no, not surprised that the sponsor of such a great club like Leeds United. Its kit designer is Asics, or Asics, or Oasics. Did the Gallagher brothers sponsor Leeds United secretly? We do not know. It's got a beautiful blue collar as well with a double button finish for those cold nights. And also you could open up those buttons on the summer days when you're out playing football. Worn by Leeds legends, a young Gary Kelly, mighty Chris Furclough, Pony Dorigo, wee Gordon Strachan, legend Gary Speed, little Rodney Wallace, nutter Noel Whelan, and oh yes indeed, he's back, listeners, beautiful Brian Dean. What a squad, what a kit. I'm delighted to be wearing it and I might wear it all weekend. So we've asked the lads to take a look at the best and worst bits of business of the 93-94 summer window. This is Transfer Business. Thank you, Stephen. My five best bits of business from the summer of 1993, leading to season 93-94 are, in at five, it's Des Walker, who moved from Sampdoria in Serie A, to Sheffield Wednesday. Dez is an England international at the time and he moved for £2.7 million, having played for Nottingham Forest uh, in England previously. And after an un- unsuccessful season in Italy where he had become homesick and didn't like the food, he wanted to return home to England and Sheffield Wednesday had a place for him in their side. In at number four, it's a real bargain and it's Marcus Gale moving from Brentford to Wimbledon for £338,000. A great bit of business from Wimbledon manager Joe Kinnear bringing the Jamaican international to the Premier League. In at number three, it's Tim Flowers 
We all love a good goalkeeper. And Tim Flowers was competing with David Seaman for the number one spot at the time. And he moved from Southampton to Kenny Douglas's Blackburn Rovers for £3.4 million. You can't put a price on a good goalkeeper. And this was certainly, for my money, great value. In at number two, and it's the return of a legend. It's Peter Beardsley moving from Everton to Newcastle United for the bargain price of £1.5 million. Kevin Keegan had just brought Newcastle to the Premier League and he was looking for the perfect foil for goal king Andy Cole up front. And there's no better link man at the time, or few, that's for sure, than Peter Beardsley. And a bargain, bargain price as well. Peter would captain Newcastle and be a real success for the Toon Army. Mosh, a shrewd bit of business there from Kevin Keegan bringing Beardsley to Newcastle. What did you make of that one? Oh, King Kevin, he could do it now. Quasimodo was signed up to that Newcastle team who referred back then as the entertainers. So uh, a fine bit of business, a great player Beardsley was, but he still looked like Quasimodo. And my number one bit of business for the summer of 1993 involves a real transfer tussle, and that's Roy Keane, who moved from Nottingham Forest to Manchester United for £3.75 million, a British record fee at the time. Roy had also agreed and shook hands with Kenny Dalglish on a move to Blackburn Rovers, but a phone call and a game of snooker with Sir Alex Ferguson would change the Irishman's mind. And for Manchester United fans, a fantastic signing, a true leader, a longevity in our best bit of business. And Roy Keane is certainly a legend of the Premier League. Dan, do you think that Roy Keane would have delivered the title to Ewood Park uh, during this season if he signed on the dotted line with Kenny? Maybe not in 93-94, but I would have said that Blackburn, if they would have had Roy Keane... 94, 95, when they won the Premier League, they would have been able to make a greater defence of their title in 1995, 96, and really build a basis off, off Keane and Shearer. Certainly would have been a great a great signing for Kenny Douglas, and he was not happy at the time, and understandably so. He actually threatened to find Roy Keane on holiday and hunt him down while he was enjoying a bit of time off. Um, thankfully for both men, uh, that didn't happen. But uh, no, he would have been an outstanding signing for Blackburn and maybe would have turned the tide for a couple more se- seasons in Blackburn's favour at the time. Keane certainly wouldn't have been afraid of Ken Kenny after taking a few punches from uh, Brian Clough back in the day. Although I would like to have seen that uh, fight on the beach in their shorts between Kenny and Roy. Oh, it would have been good value. Would have been good value. Plenty of spectators. Mush. As ever, there is always some flops in terms of transfer business uh, in every window. And you had a look at this one. Who makes your worst bits of business of 93-94? At number five is Eddie McGoldrick. He went to Arsenal from Crystal Palace for £1.15 million. He recently relegated the Eagles and with a... A Zenith Data Systems Cup medal to his name. George Graham thought he would reunite McGoldrick with Ian Wright. Arsenal fans probably remember McGoldrick for taking corners with his unorthodox looping style, where he lofted the ball high in the air before it dropped in the penalty area with snow in it. Tony Adams was not impressed. Also, the Gunners will have the lasting image of his mono brow, and he looked a little like Ronnie O'Sullivan. Well, 38 league appearances in three seasons and not a goal to his name. Did have a novelty song named after him in 2019, but it failed to reach the top 40. Number four 
deal, Gordon, from Rangers to West Ham for £1 million. A fine winger in the 80s for Norwich and a great spell in Scotland seeing West Ham bring Disco Dean Gordon down to South London. He got off to a great start as he scored West Ham's first goal in the Premiership in a 1-1 draw with Coventry at Highfield Road. But injuries hampered his time at West Ham and he only made 11 appearances in three seasons. He does do a bit of football pundit now uh, for a radio station called Dubai A and he also has set up a youth team called DG Pro FC. The name Disco Dean Gordon, well, where does that come from? He was good friends with Ashley Dublin, who was big brother to none other than Dion Dublin. And Ashley was a DJ back in the day and Dion loved throwing a few shapes anytime Dublin was playing at a nightclub. Number three, Nigel Clough from Nottingham Forest to Liverpool for £2.75 million. Son of legend Brian Clough, 101 goals in 311 games for Forest. Seen him pack his bags and go to Anfield. Clough's position was mixed. Was he a midfielder? Was he a striker? Well, he started with a bang, three goals in his first two games, but he only managed one more goal by the turn of the year and soon lost his place to a young Robbie Fowler, who managed to be Ian Big Tash Rush's strike partner for the rest of the season. Duff did manage a brace in a game at Anfield, where Liverpool were 3-0 down against Manchester United, but that was good as it got for him, and he wasn't even included in the Liverpool squad that won the 1995 Coca-Cola Cup with a 2-1 win over Bolton Wanderers. Dan, was this one move too far for Nigel Clough? No, I don't think it was. I think Nigel was very unlucky. He was a very astute footballer, an intelligent footballer. As much just said there, he, he was, you know, a cross between a midfielder and attacker, so a, a good link man. He had England caps under Graham Taylor. He was a full international. He had done very, very well playing for his father, Brian. When Forrest were relegated, I suppose, like Roy Keane, he wanted to stay in the Premier League. Basically, the emergence of Robbie Fowler kills him, really because Ian Rush is still banging in the goals for Liverpool and, you know, Fowler just comes out of nowhere and he has to play because he was outstanding. So then, back then, there wasn't much squad rotation. So you're waiting for injuries and suspensions to get a chance. This can affect form and confidence and a deal that should have worked out, but just just was unfortunate timing, I think, for Nigel as well, with Graham Souness being in charge of Liverpool and things not working out for Graham Souness. So Nigel had to move on because he was a Souness signing, really. Two, Alan Kerrigan from Middlesbrough to Manchester City for £2.1 million. The Republic of Ireland International was signed by Peter Reid, but then Reid got the chop after four games. Alan played a lot that in his first season at Main Road, but he struggled for consistency in a City team that struggled for goals and just about stayed up. This form would cost him his place in the Republic of Ireland team as Phil Bob emerged, and he didn't even play a single minute at the 1994 World Cup. He was then loaned out from City to three clubs over the next three seasons, and he got a move to St Johnson in 1997. Alan said the only thing he couldn't do in life was scuba dive, as he couldn't get the insurance for it. As for 20 years, he played football having diabetes. My number one worst bit of business for this season, Steve, is Julian Dix for three million pound to Liverpool, which also included David Burrows and Mike Marsh included in the transfer. This was a surprise signing as Dix was seen in the eyes of many Liverpool fans as a thug. Dix tried to gain Liverpool fans support 
by his performances, but the only thing Dix gained was weight, as he managed to add 19 pounds to his body, and Julian at the time wasn't a thin lad. His two main memories at Liverpool included one, scoring the last ever goal in front of the old cop before it was demolished for an all-seater stand, and two was where Julian caused £17,000 worth of damage to a dressing room and a team bath at Liverpool training ground after a bust-up of Graham Souness. He was sent back to West Ham the following season. Involved in this deal was West Ham's number two, Harry Redknapp. He convinced Graham Souness to sign him. Now, if you ask me, Harry, I think he knows what he's at here. He's just got the club £3 million plus two players and they were able to buy back Dicks the following season for £1.5 Harry, the wheeler dealer. That concludes my worst bit of business, Steve, for the 93-94 season. Dan, I think uh, Julian Dix does probably rightly so get a a reputation for being a bit of a thug. Um, But he was an unbelievable left back too, wasn't he? Like, you know, if his head wasn't lit and he, you know, if he actually cared, he would have been a, a top left back. He was the old classic full-back back then, you know, wouldn't have got forward much. He's almost like a, a, a left-footed centre-half, really, but he should never have left West Ham because of his love for West Ham. He was obviously good enough to get a big move, so he was a good player. Some players, when they leave the club that they love or the club of their heart for a big move, they're just not the same mentally. And he just, at West Ham was able to perform at a higher level percentage-wise and give more to West Ham because of his love for them. When he goes to Liverpool, he's got more pressure uh, signing for a big club and he just couldn't handle it. But West Ham suited him down to the ground. He was a West Ham fan, a West Ham boy. So he that was his home. Mush, a bizarre, some would say a mad bit of business during this window was Alex Ferguson. He sold his own son, Darren Ferguson, to Wolverhampton Wonders for £338,000. What was Fergie doing selling his own cob? Ruthless, Steve. No family loyalties in football when it came to Sir Alex. United were starting to become a real serious force in English football and probably thinking of carrying that on to the European stage. And I think Fergie just said there wasn't a place in the squad for his cob. So he says, pack your bags and get on your bike. Ferguson has later revealed that his wife uh, didn't speak to him uh, for a long time after he sold Doran. Did he make the right move? Worth it, absolutely. Uh, Suffer the doghouse for a few days. I think ultimately he does Doran a favour because he wasn't getting in the United team at the time. Although he did play a few games late 93 and played some games um, in the 92-93 season. Um, he was a good player before joining United. He had offers from Tottenham and Nottingham Forest as well. So he was a capable player. But I think Sir Alex, you know, he had Paul Ince, Brian Robson, Roy Keane. So Doran was surplus to requirements. Also Nicky Butt coming through. So Doran gets to play regular football at Wolves under Graham Taylor. Everyone's happy in the long run. We will be back with our first game, which is Swindon Town versus Coventry City. But first, here's a lovely goal from February 1994. Still 20 minutes to go here. Will we get a winner? Brian Dean, he's offside. Bosnich takes the free quickly. The goalkeeper who plays with speed. Villa bouncing the ball in their own half. They're not going to score if they keep that up. Ray Houghton, he finds Cox. He sees the cast-wrapped arm of Andy Townsend, who's pointing for it. He's escaped Gary McAllister for once. Houston, oh God, he's got his timings all wrong. Townsend, he's in the box. Is this the opener? Yes! Andy with the outside of the boot. He finishes it past Beanie. Aston Villa 1, Leeds United 0. 
Okay, we are back and it's Swindon Town versus Coventry City. Swindon, we're sitting 22nd in the Premiership table here. Yes, there were 22 teams involved this year and they had 19 points. Coventry sitting pretty with 34 points in 12th place. Dan, you had a look at this one. What happened between Swindon Town and Coventry City? Yes, a very entertaining game at the county ground in Swindon back in February 1994. And host Swindon would line up with the traditional 4-4-2 of the 90s with Nicky Hammond in goals, Brian Kilcline, Sean Taylor, Adrian Whitbread, Luke Neilhut at the back, a midfield, a very talented midfield of Martin King, John Moncur, Kevin Horlock and Nicky Summerby, front two of Keith Scott, and big summer signing, Jan Fjortoft, the Norwegian international. Coventry would line up with a 5-3-2 of the legend, Steve Ogrizovic in goals, Peter Atherton, David Rennie, Steve Morgan, Irish international Phil Bob, and Brian Burrows at the back. A midfield three of Sean Flynn, John Williams and Julian Darby. And a strike force of John Gale and Zimbabwe legend Peter Unlove. The big surprise of the day was Coventry having Geordie legend and Coventry hero Big Mickey Quinn on the bench. The game would start in quick fashion with Jan Fjortoff, the hero of the day, scoring on eight minutes from a Horlock corner, floated in. Fjortoff would meet it with a header. It would be saved by Steve Ogrisovic, but Big Oggy couldn't get up on time for the rebound. And Jan Fjortoff would meet it with his second header into the bottom corner to put Swindon 1-0 up. The rest of the first half would continue with Swindon on top with John Moncur and Nicky Summerby going close for Swindon before Peter Atherton would lose the plot for Coventry and hack down John Moncur, who was running through on goal for a penalty, which was safely dispatched by Fjortoft. Well, when I say safely, it was punched into the bottom corner by Big Oggy, who should have kept it out. Goal three would come at the start of the second half with Julian Dorby pulling one back for Coventry on their visit in their fine Peugeot Sky Blue jersey, rounding the goalkeeper Hammond to nestle into the middle of the of the net and bring Coventry back into the game to make it 2-1. Mickey Quinn would then be brought on for Coventry. And at this point, watching this game, I'm thinking Coventry are going to equalise as they are well on top with Unlove going close twice. But no, it was not to be as Sheffield Wednesday and Bradford cult hero Peter Atherton would again lose the plot and concede another penalty. This time hacking down Fjortoft who would dispatch his second penalty in the bottom left-hand corner and complete his hat-trick on the day. He would become the star man for Swindon this afternoon, who wrapped up the three points with a brilliant 3-1 win. And Fjortoft would become a hero after beginning his Swindon career as a villain, as he was unable to notch many goals, but had gone on a good run from early New Year after scoring in the FA Cup. He would go on and have a good Premier League career and a good career in England representing Middlesbrough and Sheffield United also. A great three points for John Gorman's men. Three points in the bag and something to build on for Swindon. A great victory here for Swindon, Dan. Uh, Fjortoft really coming into his own. He is a lesser-known sort of Norwegian striker. Tor Andre Flo and Solskjaer and Stefan Iversen would be ahead of him in terms of who you would recognise when you hear Norwegian striker. Gave a good of a account of himself and I said on it, he had a very... Um, Difficult start, the life at Swindon. He was actually he was actually going to be sold, but he manages to score in the FA Cup game when he was just about to get subbed and sold the next day. But he scores, 
The transfer deal doesn't go through. He stays at Swindon and he's really leading the fight here against Coventry, fighting for Premier League survival. Yeah, he actually played 70 times. He actually played 70 times for his country and uh, he notched 21 goals, which isn't a bad international return. But, it's a really um, yeah, good international return. Fjortoft, as good as he was with his hat-trick. Steve Agrusevich, Augie had a bit of a mare as well. Oh, jeez, what, what's he playing at? And Steve, normally a reliable man between the sticks for Coventry in the 90s, and he's had a bit of a howler here. Uh, chocolate risk, you might. Um, and as Dan truly noted, big Augie let, let Coventry down. After the game, Swindon manager John Gorman was still very positive, even though, as you said, Dan, they were rooted down towards the bottom of the table. Very bright, very positive manager. And lads, he is a dead ringer for a certain actor. Do we know who that actor is? Tom Selleck? Yes, it's Tom Selleck! <laughs> He's as bit of him. <laughs> it's the moustache. Was he fighting crime across the streets of Swindon on the weekends? I think he was. Paul Magnum PA? Yeah. <laughs> That's him indeed. You know, when you hear some of these retro names come out, Steve Agrusevich being one of them, I had to Google Steve Agrusevich, you know, like a cult figure for Coventry. Do you know what Steve Agrusevich used to do before he was a professional footballer? Oh, something to do with fruit and veg? Uh, no, and no, could, well couldn't off. be further away from that. Was he a boxer? <laughs> no, he was a cop. <laughs> what? Big Oggy on the cop. beat? Big Oggy was on the beat. Oh my God. There was a report on the internet that Steve Agrusevich was actually kidnapped in Kazakhstan and there was a ransom note. How much was the ransom for? I don't I don't know how much the, the ransom was for, but it actually turned out to be absolute nonsense. It wasn't true at all. Somebody just made it up. And Steve Agrusevich had to come out publicly and say he wasn't kidnapped in Kazakhstan, that he was at home in Coventry. That is mental. <laughs> 1993-94, everybody. Anyway, Swindon, they, they huffed and puffed this season, but uh, it was one step too far being in the Premier League for them, wasn't it? Yes, one step too far. And uh, after getting promoted to the Premier League under Glenn Hoddle, he moved on to Chelsea, which probably set them back as well because not only did they lose Hoddle the manager, they lost Hoddle the player who was still playing at the time. And he had played at the back for Swindon the year they got promoted. So they missed him on two fronts. John Gorman, you know, he was Hoddle's number two. He takes the job. Maybe it's a classic case of, of, of you're a great coach and assistant manager, but a manager's post is a lot different, a lot harder. You're having to do a, um, a range of things. And as well, they were a young team. And I think maybe years later, if the John Moncur and experienced Kevin Horlock, Nicky Summerbay and Fjord Toft as well, Maybe they would have been able to stay up, but maybe just a season too early for them. And unfortunately, um, we haven't seen them since in the Premier League. My madman of the week is none other than Vinnie Jones, one of the dirtiest and toughest players English football has ever seen. An old school defensive midfielder, his job wasn't to play, it was to break up play. As Vinnie Jones tried to break many's a man's leg and is quoted as saying, what I like most is the snapping of the rival's bones when they're injured. Hated by many an opposition player and fan for his over-aggressive manner, but Vinnie Jones didn't give one monkeys. His motto was, play to the limit. Well, he certainly did that 
as he is one of the worst disciplinary records in English football, with no fewer than 104 yellow cards and 12 red cards. Before Jones became a footballer, he used to be an amateur boxer and had a real passion for throwing right hooks. And maybe this contributed to his knockout blows on the pitch. Jones, a big boxing fan, was at ringside the night Mike Tyson nibbled Holyfield's ear. Jones shouting, bite it, bite it, bite it off! Jones' footballing career started out at non-league, where he was a young lad. And this also coincided with him juggling being a bricklayer. Bizarre move of Jones's career was where he packed his army rucksack and he went and loaned to Sweden, to third division club AFK Homestand. He helped them win the title. His form caught the eye of Wimbledon and they coughed up £10,000 for the hard man. And the rest is history. A part of the famous crazy gang at Wimbledon, Jones was one of the chief troublemakers on and off the pitch, along with big John Fashiru. Auga! Jones and the crazy gang's exploit would be burning fellow teammates' clothes, turning the heat off in opposition's changing rooms, putting away team's kits in the showers, and shouting in the tunnel. Gary Lineker said the best way to watch the crazy gang was to view them on CFAX. At Wimbledon, Jones won the FA Cup as they shocked Liverpool. John Motson's iconic commentary, the crazy gang, they've beaten the culture club. Jones should have seen red that day as he saw down Steve McMahon, not even a booking. He also has one of the most famous images of football of him squeezing Paul Gascoigne's nuts. Jones was told to man mark Gaza and voices of his youth managers informed him, Jones, when someone gets close to you, just grab them by the effing nuts. I'm called Vinnie Jones. I'm a gypsy. I earn lots of dough. I'm going to bite your ear off then spit it back out on the grass. He also said to Gaza, Oi, fatty, I forgot to tell you that I'll take the corners, so just wait until I'm back. He also had a, a brutal challenge on her at Cantona in the FA Cup. Vinny wearing an all-red kit, seen red, and two-footed mid-air assault on Ua. It should have been red. Eric just got up. Eric, a man who also had a mid-air kung fu challenge on the same ground the following year. Vinnie Jones has the record for the quickest booking in English football. Three seconds into an FA Cup tie between Chelsea and Sheffield United, Jones completely launched himself at Dean Whitehouse and butchered him down. Jones said about the tackle, I must have been too high, I must have been too wild, I must have been too strong or too early, because after three seconds, how could I hardly be too effing late? Wimbledon chairman branded Jones a mosquito brain. Jones failed to stay out of trouble and exceeded over 40 disciplinary points in the 92-93 season. Now, considering it was only four points for a yellow, then he stacked the bookings up. He was summoned to FA headquarters, but Jones failed to show up, saying he'd forgot. Jones was given a four-game ban and told to grow up. Life after football has been very productive for Vinny, as he has turned Hollywood hard man and has been in films such as Lockstock, Two Smoke and Barrels, Snatch and X-Men. He also released an album in 2003 called Respect. He also had a cameo in the wrestling business in 1998 as he showed up at Capital Carnage pay-per-view and was special guest enforcer alongside the big boss man in the main event. And finally, Finney donated his FA Cup winner's medal to AFC Wimbledon in 2010. It is now displaying in the clubhouse alongside a signed photo of John Fashionu when he was in Gladiators. My madman of the week, Steve, is Vinnie Jones. Those against the rules. 
This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the only ball that Bruce Grobbelor saved during the 1993-94 Premier League season. This ball can be seen and viewed in the reception of Mark Wright's house as Bruce Grobbelor felt so bad for his centre-backs this season for letting so many goals in deliberately. He kept the one ball and gave it to Mark as a praise. Oh, what a ball. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz, the quiz where I pit Dan against Mush to see who has the best football knowledge. Dan has 4-1 up. Mush got a glimmer of hope last week and he'd be looking to notch again this week to make it 4-2. Before we get started, lads, we will need your player buzzers. And this week, the player buzzers are shirt sponsors from the 93-94 season. Dan, what is your player buzzer? Holston! Beer that sponsored Tottenham Hotspur in the 1993-1994 season. When beers could appear on football shirts, eh? And Mush, what is your player buzzer? Muller! Yes, the yoghurt company that sponsored Aston Villa in the 93-94 season. Creamy. As ever, we have the legend that is Ua Cantona keeping the scores. How are you doing today, Eric? I am Cantona. Oh, good stuff, Eric. Nice to see you again. So lads, this week we were playing for the number two single in the charts in this week in February 1994. And I know personally this is one of Dan's favourites. It's Things Can Only Get Better by Dereem. Oh, what a tune. One of my favourite songs ever. Uh, I'm going to have to win this one. Or, yeah, I'll let down my family. You will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one. How many teams competed in the Premier League in 1994? Yes, Mush. 22. Correct. Who became the new sponsors of the Premier League in this season? Holston. Dan. Carlene. Correct. Where did Southampton play their home games? Muller. Holston. Yes, Mush. Adele. Correct. Who was the manager of Wimbledon? Holston. Muller. Yes, Dan. Joe Kinnear. Correct. Who finished third in the league? Holston. Yes, Dan. Arsenal. Incorrect. Mush. Oh, Newcastle United. Correct. Who managed Aston Villa? Austin. Yes, Dan. Ron Atkinson. <laughs> he sure did. Who sponsored Villa's shirts? Austin. Muller. Yes, Dan. Must just said the answer. It's Muller. Yes, Dan. Must you should have been on the buzzer there, son. Who sponsored Oldham shirts? Muller. Yes, oh, Mush. Oh, I know it. JD Sports. Yes, very they good. Did. Very good. Who finished top goal scorer with 34 Muller. goals? Yes, Mush. Andy Cole. He did. Who was picked as right back in the PFA Team of the Year? Holston. Yes, Dan. Paul Parker. Incorrect. Mush. Gary Kelly. Correct. Oh, what a shout. Who won PFA Player of the Year? Holston. Yes, Dan. Eric Cantona. He did. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. What a quiz. Gory Kelly, Mush, what a shout. Ua, what are the scores? Daniel, Sank, Conair, Cease. Oh, Mush has won. So, Dan, that is 4-2 in the series. Oh. Disappointed to lose that tune. It's all back on here in the Balls Against the Wall quiz. We will be back with the match of the week from Boundary Park. But first, here's a lovely goal from February 1994. Great tempo here at Old Trafford. Batty, he avoids Keane's challenge. Not many men can say that. Batty, he finds Gallagher. Oh, his first touch, a nutmeg's big Gary Pallister. Gallagher, he's still going. 
great pace. Oh, along comes Steve Bruce to block him off. Oh, but Gallagher, he sent him for an early bath. He's one-on-one with Schmeichel. He dinks it over the so-called big goalie. A wonderful goal to give Rovers the lead. Kenny Dalglee stands up and he applauds his fellow Scott's great piece of genius. It's Manchester United nil, Blackburn Rovers won. It's match of the week. Bloody hell. Yes, welcome to Match of the Week. It's all over at Boundary Park. We're old and we're playing Southampton, but don't worry. Mush the matchman is standing live. He's freezing in the February cold. Mush, what has happened at Boundary Park? Yes, Steve, a vital win for the Laddicks over the Saints here at a muddy, soggy, chilly Boundary Park. Three points for Oldham on their fight to stay in the Carling FA Premier League. Mind you, the so-called media referred to this as a six-pointer. Well, I have spoken to Carl Volleman and we have crunched the numbers and only three points has been awarded for a victory today. Joe Royal wearing a suit which is on the tick from Littlewood's catalogue made one change from his sides battling 1-1 draw at Highbury. Steve Redman got a big Umbro tracksuit and a place on the bench and in came Neil MacDonald. Big Joe opted for a 5-3-2 formation to try and shore up his leaky defence which had shifted no fewer than 54 league goals this season. Alan Ball wrapped up in a long Saints coat that looked more like a sleeping bag. He completed his look with a peak cap. Had he just come from milking cattle or was he out hunting with Saints chairman Guy Askham? Who the hell knows? Well, we Ball kept the same starting 11 that got a surprise win at St. James's Park last week. That was Ball's first game in charge and Matt Letizia roasted Barry Venison and his mullet to steal all three points. There was no Peter Reid in the Saints squad today. He was sold to Notts County this morning on a free transfer. Good friend Howard Kendall even picked him up from the train station. The action got underway with Southampton and Oldham like two prize fighters trying to figure each other out. Just as I was starting to drift off in this slugfest, the Saints won a throw in after Fleming hit Rose Ed. Jeff Kenner took the throw and found Letiz in space in the mud bath at his boundary park. Letiz let the ball bounce like Andre Agassi preparing to serve. And Letiz connected with his Puma King from outside the area. He crisply guided the size five mitre ball into the net. Matt's 12th goal of the season. Big question marks over holding man Richard Holding. A man who had struggled to hold a fab lolly on a summer's day. The Oldham keeper didn't cover himself in glory either as he dived over the ball. Oldham nil, Southampton won. Joe Royal was up from the dugout and all he had to do was give his players the coldest look that would give your toes frostbite. This sparked a response from the Latics. Paul Allen gave away the ball straight to Scott Paul Bernard who slipped Welsh Dragon Sean McCarthy through who said shut them to Dave Besson and slotted it through the ex-crazy gang members' legs. McCarthy's first goal of the season, 1-0. Oldham full of Branston beans smelled blood and six minutes later, Southampton's left-hand side had gone missing. Oldham right back McDonald ousted Simon Charlton and crossed low to find another flower of Scotland, Paul Bernard, who ghosted in between Moncou and Moore to side foot past Dave Besant at his dodgy perm. Bernard's fifth goal of the season, Oldham two, Southampton one, half time. The action resumed. The players full of the juice from the halftime Mandarin started to grind each other down as the play matched the pitch conditions. Oldham captain Plastic Paddy, Michael Mickey Mihol Milligan led by example, 
by dragging aside through the mud like any leader would. Neil Madison looked lively down the wing as he roasted Jobson and crossed into the box with a knife and fork attached saying, Ian Dowie, finish me! But Ian couldn't connect with it, with his big nut. Is it me or does Dowie look like the double of sloth from the Goonies? Dowie, the only man to get booked in this game. Was it for unsporting behaviour or was it for his looks? Referee Kelvin Morton flashed the yellow at him. Alan Ball rolled the dice by bringing on ex-trainee David Hughes for his debut on to replace Nicky Banger. Joe Royal responded by bringing on Roger Palmer. No relation of Carlton Palmer or Terry Venable's pet kangaroo, also named Carlton Palmer. Oldham's back five soaked up any of the Saints' pressure like a big sponge that you would use to wash your car on a sunny Sunday. The full-time whistle was met with a huge roar from the 9,000 fans. After this result, Oldham sit one point away from safety behind Southampton. Can Big Joe Royal create another Houdini act? Why was Gunnar Halla not in the squad? An FA Cup fifth-round tie awaits for them against Barnsley. As for Southampton, a big bump down to reality. They will rely a lot on Matt Letizia's genius. Can Ian Dowie get away from that pirate ship in the Goonies? Dave Besson, please find a barber, as perms were an 80s thing. The Saints are home to Roy Evans' Liverpool next week in their quest to save from the drop. It's finished here, Steve. Oldham 2, Southampton 1. Back to you in the studio. Oh, mush, it sounds like it was a cracking but cold game there at Boundary Park. Dan, Oldham really making a go of things here and uh, trying to stay alive in the Premier League. Oh, a vital three points against a team down there battling with them. A much-needed win and looking for the kind of inspiration that they got the season previous where they were able to go on a surge. And Oldham weren't bad on their day, you know. They were capable of picking up these types of wins. So, yeah, they done really well to get the win, especially after going behind uh, Letizia's goal, which um, I think should have been saved, to be honest, uh, by Hallworth. A brilliant, spurted performance from Oldham and doing their best to try and keep their Premier League status. The reason we picked this week was because it was one of the only weeks that Swindon and Oldham actually both won a game at the weekend and we wanted it to be a feel-good issue for, for Oldham and for Swindon. Oldham, Dan, very, very lucky to actually be in the Premiership considering the great escape that they made the year previous. Probably should have got relegated the season before, but as you say, went not great escape, that late surge... Where they beat they beat Southampton actually their opponents on this day and they got a great um, win against Aston Villa who were challenging for the Premier League in 92-93 as well and uh, Joe Royal a good manager news football he had a great playing career as well and probably just dug some inspiration out of nowhere to keep them up keep them battling they'd done well in the early 90s in cups as well so maybe just created that. Every game's a cup final atmosphere within the squad. And, you know, you have to win these games if you want to stay up. If we don't win, we're going down. It's as simple as that. Yeah, they won 4-3 against Southampton on the last day of the season to stay up, despite a Matt Letizia hat-trick. Um, so brilliant stuff. And Palace lost 3-0 at Arsenal and they went down. As we will later find out, Dan, Oldham do go down eventually. Even though they notched up 40 points, you know, in today's Premier League, we all talk about this 40-point mark, and they made that, but because of the 22 teams, uh, the 40 points weren't enough. But they did manage to have a good cup run. Yeah, they had a great cup run. They got, they got all the way to the semi-finals and for, uh, not forced a replay, but they should have won the first game. 
against Manchester United, but for a, a late Mark Hughes uh, equaliser. And unfortunately, like a lot of smaller teams to go on and lose the replay, they gave it a good account of themselves. You know, they were in the first division for a few years and just, you know, we haven't seen them since. And it's probably just because they haven't, they didn't get the investment that they needed straight away. That really does matter in, in the old Division 1 and now the Championship. You need that investment to get straight back up. Transfers in and transfers out at the start of this season. And they, their record signing was McCarthy for 565000 And you're thinking, well, I haven't really spent a lot. But they actually sold Ian Marshall to Ipswich as well for a million pounds. So... They had the great escape and then they also made a profit in the transfer window. So they don't really have the ambition to stay in the league. No, it would seem that they don't from the transfer business. And I think, you know, if, if you're getting one million for a player, one million pound was a lot of money back then, but there was still larger fees as well, as we've seen in the transfer business. So you take that one million and you go and buy a one million pound player or buy two players, you know. So yeah, the ambition probably wasn't there from the owners at the time and they've Paid the price in the 90s later on when they were unable to get promoted. And then other clubs invest and get ahead of them. And look, you're on a downward spiral after that. Tough mountain to climb to get back to the Premier League. Okay, Mush the Matchman is back from Boundary Park. Can you provide us with the rest of the weekend scores? Yes, the rest of the scores from that weekend in the 93-94 Premier League season. Blackburn Rovers 3, Wimbledon nil. Always smiling Alan Shearer with a penalty. Jason Wilcox and Stuart Galaxy Ripley with the other goals. Everton 4, Chelsea 2. Paul Rideout with a brace, John O'Brill with a goal and Brett the Hitman Engel with a goal for Everton. Chelsea's goals were scored by a brace from Mark Stein who was set up by OG King Frank Sinclair. Manchester City 2, Ipswich Town 1. Norwich City 2, Liverpool 2. Chris Syme always writes Sutton with a brace. He was set up by Effin Okoku and Jeremy Gross, while Liverpool's goals came from an OG from Ian Culverhouse and rapper John Barnes. QPR 2, Manchester United 3. Manchester United's goals were scored by Andre Russian gangster Kinchelskis, Eric Seagal Cantona, and Rodri Ryan Giggs. Them goals were set up by big goalies big punt Peter Schmeichel, Dennis Reliable Irwin, and big time Charlie Paul Ince. QPR's goals was a Clive Wilson penalty and big Les Ferdinand set up by Ian Holloway. Tottenham Hotspur 1, Sheffield Wednesday 3. Sheffield Wednesday's goals were scored by Simon Coleman, a Mark Bright brace who was set up by Chris Bart Williams and Tottenham Hotspur's goal was by Ronnie Rosenthal, was set up by Darren Cheestrings for Hamstrings Anderton. And finally, Aston Villa 1, Leeds United 0. Andy Townsend with a goal which was set up by Neil Cox. That concludes the scores for this weekend of the 1993-94 Premier League season. Dan, a few cracking games here in this round of fixtures in the Premier League. We give them an awful touch in a couple of issues before, but Chris Sutton came up with a brace against Liverpool here to keep Norwich on track. And they were doing pretty well in the Premier League at this stage. Oh, Norwich were flying. They had finished third in 92-93 and they had a real good side to put together. They've done well in the UEFA Cup in 93-94, knocking out Bayern Munich. And they were... A good outfit. Sutton was banging in the goals at Rule Fox, Effina Cuckoo, Mark Robbins, Jeremy Goss, uh, Mark Bowen. Had some really, really good players. And Sutton getting attention from a lot of the top clubs in the Premier League, even though Norwich were a top club at the time, but could they sustain it? Sutton would, would 
get his big move in the summer of 1994 then and we're doing really well. It's probably surprising 93, 94 that Liverpool got a point at Norwich. You know, uh, that's how, how crazy it was back then. Uh, Norwich probably feel like they've dropped two points. Listeners, if you get a chance, um, watch the highlights of this game. Just for Sutton's goal, he plays a 1-2 on the edge of the box. Two touch and the second touch is a lob um, over Gravelor and it is it's a beautiful goal. So, well done, Chris. Just having another look at one of these games, lads, Spurs and Sheffield Wednesday. Spurs were in a bit of free fall here. Sheffield Wednesday turning Spurs over on the day. A very good day, Wednesday team. Obviously, they had Des Walker, Carton Palmer, big pressman, a young Chris Bart Williams, Mark Bright up top, banging them in. Again, Spurs weren't up to much, you know, Ian Walker in the bags. To me, this wasn't a major upset. Um, as I would class Spurs and Wednesday as mid-table clubs in the early 90s. So, but a cracking three points for Wednesday. Dan, Spurs were actually in a bit of free fall here um, with their financial irregularities. Comes from just uh, behind the scenes. Obviously, nothing to do with the players, but just some deals that went awry and there was some court cases that they involved in Tottenham in the early 90s as well. And, and owner Alan Sugar had the had to fight the cause, rightly or wrongly, but had to fight for his club. Sometimes this can't come onto the pitch and affect affect the team as well. And it certainly did the didn't really invest at the time into the squad for Aussie Ordiles until then the summer '94 when things had cleared up a bit better and they, they bought some brilliant players after the 1994 World Cup. But at one stage in 1993-94, Spurs were in danger of getting relegated. With these financial irregularities, um, which I only can presume is money laundering because the inland revenue were after them, they were mm. actually fined 600 grand, which would have been quite a fair amount of money back then. And Absolutely. they were going to be, for the 94-95 season, they were going to be deducted 12 points and not be allowed to play in the FA Cup. But Sugar took it to court, as you say, and they mm-hmm. uh, managed to win the case because um, yep. it was dealings that took place in the 80s under previous ownership. Tottenham uh, in a bit of a mess. Lads, anything else we want to say about these round of fixtures? Just for the listeners, just so many goals in the 93-94 Premier League season. Very, very few nil-nils on any given weekend. So go back, watch Premier League years 1993-94. YouTube, the best goals of 1993-94. You're in for a, a serious treat. So many good strikers and attacking wingers and real geniuses back then. So go back and enjoy those early 90 Premier League seasons. Yes, when 4-4-2 was alive and well. This week's Maverick of the Week is the one club legend, Matthew Letizier. That's right, his career started at Southampton and it ended with, at Southampton. Matt Letizier is the first of our Mavericks on the show to be a one club man. His career with Southampton began in 1986 and ended in 2002. Nicknamed by the Southampton faithful, Lee God, as he was adored by fans and admired by rivals all across the country because of his free role that he had the majority of career and the skill he showed in that uh, position, as well as the fantastic goals and moments that he supplied football fans with. He was PFA Player of the Year in 1989-90, scoring 20 goals, which is a great record for a young man, as at the time Matt was, was playing sometimes as a wide man on the left or right, coming in and partnering the two Wallaces and a young Alan Shearer in a very attacking and youthful Southampton lineup. His highest scoring season was in the season we are talking about today, 
1993-1994 where Matt scored 25 Premier League goals. A great uh, record for a player uh, playing in between midfield and attack at the time. He was given licence by Southampton to just run riot and go wherever he wanted. And you could see this in the goals that he scored. Top corners, bottom bags, middle of the bags, nutmegs, free kicks, volleys, chips, you name it, he scored it. He was the goal of the season winner in 1995 for a 40-yard chip where he lobbed former teammate Tim Flowers in a game v Blackburn. And he celebrated by this goal by pointing at Flowers. And at the end of the clip, you can actually see Flowers simply smiling as he knows he's been done over by the genius of Matt. He scored also fantastic goals against Newcastle, Manchester United, Blackburn Rovers, Wimbledon. Who can forget that free kick where he lobs it up with his foot and just volleys it into the top corner in one movement. Hans Sagers was in goals for Wimbledon, but I don't think he could have saved it even if he did try. He was the main reason why Southampton uh, didn't get relegated all through the 90s. Matt's loyalty to his club and the pain that he would feel if he was to leave and watch them get relegated, keeping him there. Over the course of his career, Matt turned down moves away to many big clubs in England and abroad. Tottenham Hotspur, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United and reigning champions Blackburn in the summer of 1995, who were rumoured to bid £10 million for Matt Letizia, which would have been a British record at the time overtaking Andy Cole's move to Manchester United. He was also linked with a number of clubs in France, Marseille and Lyon, to name but two. And speaking of France, Gerard Houllier and Michel Platini made an inquiry about Matthew Letizia's availability for the French national team in the early 90s. Turns out Matt Letizia had no French background and no French family at all. He just simply has a bit of a French name. But to be in, uh, an inquiry be made by the likes of Houllier and Platini uh, shows how highly he was held in regard by the two Frenchmen. His international career was mixed with Matt only receiving eight caps for England. Now, while any professional footballer should be proud to get eight caps by their country, I do get the feeling that Matt would count himself very unfortunate not to have a bag full more. Sadly for Matt, in my opinion, he was another example of England not quite knowing and understanding the role of a player with a spark of genius. And I have no doubt Matt would have had many caps had he been born in a Spain, Italy, France or Brazil. He would score a hat-trick for England B team on the road to France 98 when Glenn Honnell wanted him to play for the Bs to get some uh, 90 minutes uh, with a view to squeezing into the France 98 squad. But sadly, this, this did not happen. And I'm very surprised at this given Hoddle's uh, own playing career where he was a bit of a maverick himself. Back to Southampton and Matt would continue to captain the side and score uh, double-figure goals and assists in all Premier League seasons. Matt scored the last goal at the Old Dale as well in May 2001 against Arsenal in a 3-2 win. I find it fitting that this was Matt's last goal as well for Southampton, despite playing the following season, the Saints' first season at St Mary's. Matt would retire from Southampton at the end of the 2001-2002 season as he had a number of injuries and this would affect his weight also and he just seen it as his time to leave. His final match for Southampton was also a cracker and summed up his whole career as a maverick in which Southampton played an England select in a match that finished 9-0 with Matt's son Mitchell partnering his father up front and scoring four goals. What a way to leave and what a great moment for the Letizia family so well thought of by the Southampton faithful and all their fans and a true fitting end to Matt's career with Southampton. For years, we would see Matt on our screen as a pre presenter, sorry, as a pundit on Sky Sports Soccer Saturday with Paul Merson, Charlie Nicholas, 
Phil Thompson and Jeff Stelling. And certainly they are missed now, having been replaced at the start of this season. I find myself watching BT now on a Saturday rather than Sky Sports. Such is my love and admiration for the old retros. In conclusion, Matthew Letizia is simply the ultimate club man. Unmatched loyalty compared to legendary club men like a Jamie Corriger or a Ryan Giggs who gained success and were happy to stay at their clubs because they achieved success. Matt did not achieve success in, in terms of silverware, but he did in terms of love for the love of the game, love of the fans, love from his teammates and managers alike. He was a scorer and creator of wonderful goals, a leader and great captain. He was also a king penalty taker, scoring 47 out of 48 penalties in his career. His one penalty missed, saved by Nottingham Forest legend Mark Crossley. Mark Crossley calls this his greatest save. He is a wonderful maverick, a joy to watch, and I would uh, encourage all our listeners to go on to YouTube, type in Matt Letissier, and you will get to see a range of wonderful goals and assists from the legend. This week's Maverick of the Week is Matt Letissier. Don't touch the pack. We'll be right back after this from our Maverick of the Week. <laughs> uh, some of the goals you've got have been just out of this world. Um, I, I, I've got to ask, I suspect I know the answer. What, your own favourite is, is Blackburn? Yeah, my own favourite is the Blackburn one. Yeah. It wasn't one of them where you just kind of put your head down and smack through it and, and don't know where it's going. It was actually a, a it was actually a shot that I've been practicing in training quite a bit, which surprises people when I tell them that because they didn't think I went training. Um, but I did. We'll it, get to that. It was a shot that I, I had practiced and uh, and it came off brilliantly. It was it was exactly where I was trying to aim the ball. That that was what for me, that's what made it special. And the fact that my mate was in goal for Blackburn that day. Famously, you scored a hat trick for England B in the run up to '98 World Cup. Didn't make the squad at thirty. And it was Glenn Hoddle who was manager at the time, a creative midfielder and someone you, I believe yeah. you really admired as a player. Yeah, Glenn was my hero as a kid. You know, yeah. I was a Spurs fan growing up, and uh, yeah, that was that was massive disappointment. I always played uh, my football for Southampton, hoping that if I played well, I can play for England, yeah. and that was kind of that's what kind of kept keeps you going at club level. Um, and then when I realised that had been taken away from me, you. Were, I think I almost looked back and thought, well, it doesn't matter how well I'm going to play. I'm never going to get there again. Uh, and then I started picking up a few injuries and stuff and it all kind of went downhill from there. To this day, I've never drunk a pint of lager. Uh, what? I've... No. You've never drank a pint never of lager? Never drunk a pint of lager in my life. What, what, what's your poison then? I, I, <laughs> I knew that question was coming. I drink Malibu and Coke. Hey, hey, Brucey's. Bedtime bath, nice and warm, full of suds, a scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's ready in his bath? Brucey, come on. Now, we spoke about this. It's bath time. It's a little bit different. It's not comfortable in getting you ready for bed. It's getting you ready for the action you have ahead of you tomorrow. So we've run you an ice bath. I need to get you in. I need to get those hamstrings and calves ready because tomorrow you are the special guest on a celebrity edition of Gladiators. 
hosted by John Fashionu and Ulrika Kaka Johnson. So get ready, Brucey, because we want you to win this. Okay, Brucey. This week's story comes from Vinnie Jones. At the end of my time at Leeds, I wasn't playing. We had talented midfield players like Gary Speed, Gary McAllister, David Batty and Chris Kamara. Still, I wanted to have my say, but I had so much respect for the gaffer. I bit my tongue and thought my hard work would do the talking. But eventually, I cracked. Around the fifth game of the season, away to Luton, I still hoped to be back in the side. I'd been doing some shooting up in Leeds and was planning to bring my kit on the coach because I was due to spend the weekend in Watford. Everybody was on the coach before me. And as Howard Wilkinson went to get on board, I said something sarcastic like, will I be needing my boots today? He wasn't amused. Then, when I opened the boot of my car, the idea struck. The shotgun. I took it out from its sleeve. And as the players looked out from the coach, I saw their expressions change. And everybody turned deadly silent. As I stepped inside the coach, Wilkinson looked up and I put the end of the 12 ball right up his nostrils with my finger on the trigger and said, Now, are you going to bloody play me at Luton tomorrow? I kept a straight face long enough for him to seriously wonder. Of course the gun wasn't loaded and the safety mechanism was clicked in place. But for a second or two, he looked seriously worried. Then, as I replaced my skull with a smile and a laugh, Wilkinson cracked up. He was the first to appreciate the joke and the laughter tore through the entire coach. Howard appreciated it more than anybody. The real laugh was, though, that he did play me at Luton. Did you enjoy that, Brucey? Ah, good. <laughs> Get to bed, you scallywag. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight and don't let Gary Pallister bite. So now it's part of the podcast where we pick another player in our Simpsons lookalike 11. We've already got a packed midfield. We've got McBean, Peter Schmeichel in the bags and Freddie Quimby, also known as Olivier Giroud, up front. It's now Mush the Matchman's turn to pick another player in our 11. Mush, who have you went for this week? Yes, Steve. So the team's starting to take shape, but I feel it needs a bit of a thuggish man, especially in defence. The popular... I have in mind, we have already spoken about him today, and that is Julian Dix. But in his Liverpool days, he had a mop of her. But the Julian Dix I'm referring to is his second spell at West Ham when he had a shaved head and a bully look about him. And he actually looked a lot older than his actual age, which is very similar to the Simpsons character, which he looks like, which is none other than Kearney, who is a bully and hangs around with the yellow weasel in the show, which will suit our team as we already have Diego Simeone in there. Perfect. One of Jimbo Jones's henchmen and uh, a father at 14, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he is. There's... <laughs> he, he is a father and he probably is even a grandfather in the show by now. <laughs> Dan, are you happy with Julian Dix as Kearney going in at left back? I'm delighted. I felt like we needed a bit of metal and uh, grit in the back four and uh, Kearney will certainly supply that. Dan, I think that's your door there. Go and, go and get that. Oh, I'll get it here now. Ah, it's Postman Pat Rice. How you doing, Pat? Oh, too bad. How you doing? Oh, the best. What's the crack this week? Oh, usual Steve. Flat out, hey. Daniel, 
Did you know two fictional players were added to the Championship Manager 93-94 game? They were Mark Collins, a defender, and Ferro Orozco, a striker, for Cambridge United in Division 3. Both these men would actually worked on the production of the game. Did you know that, Daniel? I did not know that, Pat. Brilliant to get that information from you today. Right, lads, here, I've got to go. These Amazon boys have me sweat lashing off me. So uh, I'll chat you through the week. All the best, lads. All right, Pat. What does that letter say there, Dan? Yes, Steve, it's a letter from Michael James Jordan from all the way in Abu Dhabi. And he has sent us a letter referring to our issue two on the 2001-2002 season. And it starts off by saying, Dear everyone at Jumpers for Goalposts, as a Tranmere fan who hates Bolton Wanderers with a passion, I saw Bolton's promotion with a jealous eye. At the time, I worked for an agency which used to do catering for Premier League matches in the North West. It was a pretty sweet gig, 40 quid, and watched the second half. The first Monday night football match was Bolton Wanderers versus Liverpool at the Reebok Stadium, mostly remembered for Sander Westerville's howler and a great victory for the newly promoted side. Anyway... My abiding memory of the match was a Bolton fan ordering 15 pints of beer at half time. When I finished handing them out, he asked me for another two. I turned around to pour them, and when I turned back, he had buggered off with the 15 pints. I was too (laughs) embarrassed to tell the boss, and the guy got off scot-free. To be fair, good on him for taking advantage of a wet-behind-the-ears young barman, and congratulations to Bolton on a fantastic season in 2001-2002 was brilliant results at Old Trafford and Anfield. Superb. 17 free paints. Can you imagine? <laughs> I wonder what he did with them. I'd have poured maybe, I'd have drank two of them and poured the rest over my head for the crack. Ah, oh, poor Michael. But thanks for sharing that story, Michael. And remember, you can contact us with your football stories. Just email us at jumperspodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. Just search for at jumperspodcast. And our Twitter handle is at jumpersforgoal4. That's at jumpers, F-O-R, goal, followed by the number four. So that is the end of the pod this week, folks. But we will be back next week. And next week, we are going, jetting off to February 1999. Dan, what have we got in store? Well, we're taking a look at a titanic tussle between Arsenal and Manchester United. Loads to talk about. Loads of transfer dealings following the France 98 World Cup as well. So it should be a a terrific issue and one worth listening to. Yes, and next week's foreign treat comes in the way of Juventus versus that brilliant Parmeside that had Buffon, Cannavaro, Turam, Varane. We've also got Brucey back at splashing in his bath and Dan will be picking his next Maverick of the Week. So join us for that. So it's good night from me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush, the matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mosh. See you next week.